Well, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're looking again at chapter 1, and today we're going to look at verses 2 through 4. But I would like to read, beginning at verse 1, down to verse 8, because all of that is one unit of thought. Mark chapter 1. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Last week we began this new study in Mark's Gospel. And we looked at verse 1. And we saw in verse 1 that it's a title. It's a title for the contents of this gospel. Mark is telling his readers that his gospel is about Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us that he is the Son of God. He is the Lord of glory. He is God incarnate. And now Mark proceeds to tell us about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ and a voice in the wilderness. Mark doesn't begin with the birth of Christ, as Matthew and Luke does. He doesn't take us where the Apostle John does, to that face-to-face relationship that Jesus had with the Father. No, he begins here with the prophecy of Isaiah. R.C. Sproul says, when John the Baptist appeared on the scene of Israel, when he came out of the desert and began to preach after hundreds of years of silence since the last Old Testament prophet, his appearance stirred more national interest than Jesus' initial appearance. The people had thought God was finished with prophets. But suddenly, a prophet emerged out of the wilderness. And you have more than 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one calling in the wilderness appears. All four gospel writers citing this prophecy ascribe the voice to John the Baptist. So as Mark begins his gospel, he begins by citing this prophecy, and he says... As it is written. To say as it is written was to introduce this Old Testament quote. Mark uses that same formula four other times when he introduces other Old Testament prophecy. We find it in chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 9, verse 13, chapter 14, verse 21, as well as verse 27. But as you look at this, and you begin to examine verses 2 through 8, you quickly see that they form a closely knit unit, setting forth the ministry of Christ's forerunner. In fact, verses 2 through 4 comprise one complete sentence. It begins with the prophetic citation in verses 2 and 3. This forms the introduction. Then in verse 4, he gives the historical statement which completes the sentence. Notice what the prophecy says again. Look at verse 2. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Some versions begin with, as it is written, in the prophets and leave out the name Isaiah. But the better Greek manuscripts read Isaiah the prophet. This is actually a quotation from two Old Testament passages. You have one in Malachi, Malachi 3.1, and then you have Isaiah 40 and verse 3. He basically merges them together. It's only the last two lines quoted are from Isaiah 43. The first two are from Malachi 3.1. And the whole point of this quotation is to tell us about John's preparatory ministry. It is to fulfill prophecy, again, that was spoken more than 700 years before this. And this was actually authenticating Jesus' messiahship and preparing for his ministry. Now, if you're looking at Malachi's portion of this, you'll find in chapter 4 and verse 5 of Malachi that he says that the messenger is Elijah. But both Matthew and Mark identify this messenger as John the Baptist. We find it in Mark 11.10, or Matthew 11:10 and Mark 1 and verse 2. Jesus even said this in Matthew 11:14 that if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So John would come according to Luke 1:17 in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This certainly tells us how he would do this, how he would prepare them, how he would make them ready for the way of the Lord, and he would do that through preaching. These two prophecies would foretell that before the Messiah would come, God would send a herald. And that herald's responsibility would be to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this goes right along with the custom of the day. Because the custom of the day was, with earthly monarchs in the ancient world, they would send official messengers before them to prepare the way. They would announce their coming and make the people ready to receive them. Well, you know what? God does the same right here. John the Baptist ran ahead to prepare everyone for the king's arrival. Luke 1 records the birth of John the Baptist. Luke 1 7 says that Zacharias and Elizabeth had no children. And that was because Elizabeth was barren. And not only was she barren, she was well advanced in years. She was past the age of bearing children. But something unusual happened that day when Zacharias was in the temple. He was doing his priestly service before God. And so, as he was in the temple preparing to burn incense, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. The angel identifies himself as Gabriel, that's the only time besides Michael being mentioned that angels are identified by a name. Verses 12 and 13 of Luke chapter 1 says, Zacharias was troubled. I kind of laugh in a little bit of humor when I read that because the word that he uses here literally means to cause great mental distress. If I can say it another way, he was terrified. And wouldn't you be? He was terrified when he saw the angel. And it says, and fear gripped him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now just a footnote right here. Elizabeth, as you just heard, was barren, which meant she had no child. But now she will be pregnant and bear a son. I can't help but to go here for just a second, but life begins when? At conception. Both Psalm 139, verse 13, Psalm 139, verse 15, state that God forms you in your mother's womb. And since that is the case, there is no opportunity or no reason whatsoever, according to Scripture, for abortion. We always hear, in the case of the life of the mother, or rape, or incest, and they allow for it, but biblically speaking, that is a life. And that life begins at conception. And to abort that life is murder. I don't know if you know this, but since the Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion back in 1973, there have been over 63 million abortions. So my prayer is, is that somehow it would stop. And that our elected leaders would see that this is life. But if I'm looking at the culture and I'm looking at the climate, I don't see that happening. In fact, what I do see happening is that the Democrats and some Republicans and some independents, they want to make this the law of the land, and they are succeeding. I just read about one state yesterday that made it part of their state constitution that it is a right to have an abortion. Now again, I deviate just for a second for that, but I remind you when you look back, that baby in the womb was life. She was once barren, but now she is with child. She gives birth to John the Baptist. The angel proceeds to tell Zacharias even what kind of man he would be. If you're following me in Luke 1, Luke 15, or Luke 1, verses 15 and 16 says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. But because Zacharias didn't believe the angel's word, the angel says to Zacharias, you're going to be silent. You're going to be unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Now, for some ladies who are pregnant and have it where their husband can't speak for the entire nine months is bliss. But this was because of his unbelief. How could you not believe the words of the angel who's standing right there and that you're terrified to see? Well, that just shows our depravity, doesn't it? When you look at the Gospel of John, the Apostle John says that John the Baptist was sent from God. He was not the Messiah. He was not the Christ. But John 1, 6-8 says that he was sent as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So when you go back here to verses 2 and 3, Mark is repeating Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. He applies it to John the Baptist as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let's... Think for just a moment about that voice. That was literally a voice of shouting. It's translated crying, and that is speaking of a loud cry or a shout that could be heard from a distance. 
It was a cry that was marked by intensity and emotion. The cry was to make his past straight. That's probably an allusion to the preparation for the, for the arrival of the Messiah through repentance. Because the way of the Lord is the way of repentance. It's turning from sin to righteousness. It's turning spiritual paths that are crooked into ones that are straight and holy. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. But he applies these two verses to John the Baptist. And then in verses 4 through 8, he tells us about the forerunner of Christ. And he begins in verse 4 with his revealing. And by the way, that's all we'll look at today. Mark says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Looking more closely at that, his name, John, it's not after his father Zacharias, because if you remember, most fathers would name their son their name. They would be a junior, but as we just heard, the angel Gabriel told him in Luke 1.13 to name him John. That was a very common name in the first century. The name meant the Lord is gracious. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Johannan. The name Baptist is not his last name. It's not even his denomination. Hadn't heard that one yet. It's a title. It's literally the baptizer. John the baptizer. And that distinguished him from all others with that same name. Linsky says, while baptizing was distinctive of John and thus gave him an additional name, his work in general was that of a prophet, more specifically of a herald sent of God to the nation. Well, Mark tells us that he appeared in the wilderness. Now, according to Luke 180, this is also where he grew up. He spent the duration of his ministry in the wilderness alongside the Jordan River. That was about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And so for Mark to say to his audience that John appeared in the wilderness, this was a reminder for them. And what was he reminding them? About their time in the wilderness. About the exodus from Egypt. About the entrance into the promised land. So Mark also tells us what he did in the wilderness, and it says that he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So let's take the rest of our time and talk about his preaching. Preaching here is the Greek word keruso. It occurs about 60 times in the New Testament. It means to proclaim as a herald. And we've already noted this, that this is what Mark is saying about John the Baptist. He was a herald, a forerunner, one who came prior to Jesus' ministry and prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. So in keeping with his calling, John preached to the multitudes who came to hear him in the wilderness, and he was fervently pleading with them to do what? To repent. With his fiery voice, with his impassioned plea, he would cry out with shouts, with groans, with the plea for the sinner to forsake his sin and seek the Savior. Uh, we know that's true because if you take the other account of this over in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, it says that he called for them to repent. And his baptism was referred to as a baptism of repentance. They came repenting and then were baptized. By the way, there is nothing here that would support infant baptism. 
And I would even go along to say there's nothing in Scripture to support infant baptism. When you look at baptism in the Scriptures, it was always being done to someone who understood what was going on. Babies don't understand what's going on. They don't understand their sin. They don't understand the gospel. So those who came that day to his baptism were repenting. And we'll say more about that next week. But if you'll notice in Matthew 3, if you're looking there, that there were those who had refused to repent. And who were they? They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And since they were self-righteous, John said to them in verse 7, You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words... If you choose not to repent, what is left but judgment? But narrowing in on what he's doing there in the wilderness as he's preaching prompted me to think about this whole subject of preaching. Why? Imagine that, that I would think of that. So I spent some time pouring over the scripture on that very subject. But before we look at that, let me give you a definition of preaching. And this comes from the doctor himself, Martin Lloyd-Jones. What is preaching? And here's his answer. It's logic on fire. It's eloquent reason. It's theology coming through a man who is on fire. Some people attend church for that only reason is to come and watch the preacher burn. Because he's so consumed with his message that it comes across like fire. This certainly would describe John the Baptist. Preaching was the means by which God called him to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repent. Again, this is true of him, this is true of others, it's true today. My calling as a preacher is essentially that. But we do find in Scripture this same example of preaching. For example, we find if you look down to verse 14 of chapter 1, you see Jesus preached. It says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. The Bible also says that there were others who were, that preached. Jesus alluded to Jonah in Matthew 12, 41, when he said the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We find, according to Mark 3, 14, that the disciples preached. It says he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. We go into the book of Acts. We find in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, we hear Philip preaching. It says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. We find in chapter 11 and verse 20 of Acts, men of Cyprus and Cyrene preaching says that there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. We find in Acts 13.32, 
that Paul and Barnabas preached. It says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. And of course, we can't forget about Peter. Because when you open up the book of Acts and you come to chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit comes, who stands up with the eleven and begins to preach? It's Peter. Even 1 Peter one twenty five says, But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. There were many others who preached. Acts 15.35 says that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. These others are not named. We find that some had questionable motives, but they still preached. Philippians 1.15 and following says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So even though they had the wrong motives in what they were doing, Christ was being preached, and that brought joy to Paul's heart. According to 1 Timothy 5.17, elders preach in the church. It says the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The Apostle Paul had a son in the faith. His name was Timothy. He wrote to Timothy in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And what does he tell him? Beginning at verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to make their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And beloved, I believe we're there. We are there. I think we're seeing the fulfillment of this right now. And we could mention many preachers that are doing this, but this morning I want to focus on one. He's very popular, very familiar. In fact, he's only popular because his father is popular. I'm talking about Andy Stanley, who is the son of Charles Stanley. Beloved, I was reading some quotes, and not just reading them, I was hearing him say them in video. And in all honesty, I am questioning whether he's even a believer in Christ. And I'll tell you why. In an interview with Ed Stetzer back in 2009, the interview was regarding a book that Stanley wrote called Communicating for a Change. Stetzer asked Andy Stanley about preaching. And here was the question he asked. He says, what do you think about preaching verse-by-verse messages through the books of the Bible? Here's how he responded. Guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Do you know why we don't have examples of it? Because we didn't have the entire New Testament till much later. We had portions of it, we had books of it, letters of it, but we didn't have the entire thing. But I will say this, we have 66 books now. They all comprise one book. We read them, 
How do you read a book? Do you jump in the middle? Do you read around? Not if you want to give justice to the time that you're spending doing that. And you don't do that if you're wanting to understand what the author is trying to say. Start at the beginning. If you want to know what the book is about, you read the preface. And you do that before you buy it. Because now you know what the book is about. Or you read the back cover. These things give you information about the book before you invest in the book. But we read them from start to finish. And when we look at the books of the Bible, what do we have? Do you think that they were just to read part of it? Do you think that they were just to read a verse here and a verse there? We have several examples where the author of Scripture would say, have this read in the church. And he was referring to the letter, the entire letter. Preaching from topics, that's fine if that's what you want to do. And there are many preachers that do that. To be honest with you, probably one of the masters at that was Spurgeon. Spurgeon really wasn't an expositor. But I'll tell you what, he certainly was a genius when he spoke on a topic. And he had that ability to do that. I can't do that. I tried to do that years ago. And it took me some time to really understand what it meant to teach through a book. But I remember many times sitting in my study praying this very prayer. Lord, what do you want me to speak on this Sunday? Here comes Tuesday. Lord, what do you want me to speak on this Sunday? Here comes Wednesday. Lord, what do you want me to speak on Sunday? Two things are going on right now. Number one, he's not speaking to me. Number two, I have no desire in my heart as to a topic. And you can't go several days doing that. In fact, back then, I spoke three times. Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. So I couldn't do that. When I went in to do book studies, I found out very quickly that once I was finished with a set of verses, all I had to do was go to the next set of verses. It was already picked for me. So I didn't have to spend that time trying to figure out what in the world I'm going to preach on. And you've noticed that here. Every time we look at uh, a book of the Bible, we go through that. We start in the beginning. We introduce it. Then we get into the verses and the chapters and so forth. And we write it all the way to the end. And there are a lot of good things that happen when you do that because you're forced to see things as they're written and you're forced to see them in their context. Pulling a verse here and there and everywhere doesn't offer that. In fact, I think it provides more work for the preacher. Because if I'm going to quote a verse here and a verse there, then I want to make sure I know what that verse means. And in order to understand what that means, I need to understand it in its context. The only problem is that I'm not giving all that information to you. And I think that's detrimental. But if I'm to know the whole counsel of God, it would be much better to preach all of it, not just some of it. John MacArthur, he says, the only effective way of seeing the significance of a passage is in its context. Going through an entire book sets the passage in its context on its widest, deepest, and richest level. One other thought, he says, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament was written as a collection of verses to be thrown into the air and allowed to fall back wherever they might. Rather, each book has a reasonable, logical, inspired flow of thought going from point A to point Z with all stops in between. Each was designed by the Holy Spirit so that you have the Holy Spirit communicating something powerfully and clearly in the whole letter. You dare not miss a single part. And believers grow as they are taught the Word of God, not the opinions of man. If you're just going by topic, you know what? Scripture doesn't speak about every single topic there is. So 
So where are you going to go when you're on a topic when the Bible doesn't say much about it? And I'll give you an example of that. There's only one place in Scripture where it talks about baptizing for the dead. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're going to preach on a topic and that's one of them, what are you going to say? You know what I said when I got there? There are over 30 different interpretations of this verse. No one really knows what it means, but here's what I think it means. <laughs> That's all I said, and I went into it based upon the context of what he was saying in the chapter. That's the only way I could arrive at that kind of conclusion is to have a context to work with. And context, all that means is, is what goes with the text. So as we're opening up Mark, we don't really have much of a context yet, but as we continue to go further on, we will. And we'll have to ask the question, is something that's being said right here and now go with what he's already said? In some cases, no, but in some cases, yes. And you know, when you're doing definitions of words, you, you can't just take a definition and apply the same definition to every author because not every author uses it the same way. They do the same thing you and I do. You define a word by the way you use it in a sentence a certain way, but somebody else might use that same word and not define it that way. They'll give somewhat of a general definition, but they may embellish it. They may be trying to apply this to something more that they're trying to convey to you. In 2014, Andy Stanley took on a stage at Exponential, which was a church planning conference, he was speaking to over 5,000 people. You know what he told them? You need to stop saying in your sermons, the Bible says. You need to start saying like Paul says, or Mark says, or John says. But you need to stop saying, the Bible says. Why is he so bent on not saying, the Bible says? In early 2015, Zondervan had released a series of Bible study lessons by Andy Stanley. It was called Starting Point. You can actually go on YouTube and you can watch some of the sessions. The first session, Andy Stanley did this, and this is where I'm even questioning his salvation. He began to cast doubt on the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible. He went so far as to say this. He said, we went off to college and discovered that even though the Bible was sacred, it wasn't scientific. Even though it was something to appreciate, it wasn't necessarily something that was factual. Even though there were stories in the Bible that were inspirational, they weren't necessarily true. So he just said, the Bible is not scientific, it's not factual, and it's not true. That's a problem. See, if, if, if a teacher has this kind of view, then he's not going to teach the Bible. He's going to teach everything else. And every now and then throw a verse in there that agrees with what he's trying to say. You end up teaching your opinions. One last story. This occurred on Easter Sunday. Andy Stanley opened his sermon with a statement that was aimed mostly at unbelievers, and he said this, If you said to me one-on-one, -on -one, Andy, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Jesus follower, but I'm going to let you take your best shot at convincing me to follow Jesus. He says, here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't try to defend the history of the church because the church has done some really goofy things and there's some really embarrassing, not just weekends of church history, but there's some really embarrassing seasons of church history. He goes on to say, and I wouldn't try to defend a lot of things that Christians have said or the way that Christians have treated you and I would, wouldn't try to convince you with the Bible. So you mean to tell me, if I'm telling you to convince me about the gospel, if I'm telling you I am not a Christian, I'm not a Jesus follower, but convince me 
And Andy says, I'm not going to use the Bible. Where does it talk about salvation? In where? Say it with me. The Bible. If you don't use the Bible, which tells how to become a follower of Jesus, then what's left? John MacArthur again says, If preaching is to play its God-designed role in the church, it must be built upon the Word of God. In years past, such a statement would have been obvious, even axiomatic. Stitzinger writes, A study of the history of expository preaching makes it clear that such preaching is deeply rooted in the soil of Scripture. Unfortunately, there is no longer, that is no longer true, even in evangelical churches. Much preaching today emphasizes psychology, social commentary, and political rhetoric. Bible exposition takes a back seat to a misguided craving for relevance. Richard Mayhew observes, he says, As the 90s dawn, an irresistible urge for a focus in the pulpit on the relevant seemingly exists with a resultant inattention to God's revelation. Lamentedly, there is a discernible trend in contemporary evangelicalism away from biblical preaching and a drift toward an experience-centered, pragmatic, topical approach in the pulpit. The problem with such an approach to preaching is that preachers today have no authority for preaching their own notions and opinions. They must preach the Word the apostolic word recorded in the scriptures. And whenever preachers depart from the purpose and the intent of a biblical portion, to that extent they lose their authority to preach. In short, the purpose of reading, explaining, and applying a portion of scripture is to obey the command to preach the word. In no other way may we expect to experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our preaching. He did not send thousands of years or spend thousands of years producing the Old and the New Testament only to ignore it. What he moved men to write, he now motivates us to preach. He has not promised to bless our word. That promise extends only to his own. Since there is no genuine preaching where the Spirit of God is not at work, we may say that the fundamental purpose behind preaching from the Bible is simply that in any genuine sense of the word, we may preach it all. He says the loss of this biblical foundation is the primary reason for the decline of preaching in the contemporary church. And the decline of preaching is a major factor contributing to the church's weakness and worldliness. If the church is to regain its spiritual health, preaching must return to its proper biblical foundation. Now there are many reasons why we preach and teach God's word. It is simply the response of the preacher to the call of God. God tells the preacher to preach his word. That is clear. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word. And the term word there, logos, is talking about the entire written word of God. His complete revealed truth as contained in the Bible. And when he tells him to preach, that's an imperative. An imperative is a command. He's commanding him to preach the entire written word of God. In the words of Paul in the book of Acts, as he's speaking to the elders there at Ephesus, he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. We're not to hold back. We're to preach all of it, even those parts that make you very uncomfortable. Timothy understood, and he also understood that when he spoke about the word of God that he was to preach, he knew that he was referring to things like Paul's teaching, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul said to Timothy, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. So the very things that he was being told by Paul, he was to preach. He told him in 2 Timothy 1.13 that he is to preach sound, healthy doctrine. He says, Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Preach sound doctrine. Preach the word of God. And when you do it, understand 1 Timothy 1.11 that this is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. This is, as 1 Timothy 2.7 says, faith and truth. Paul said he was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Timothy was to preach the scripture. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul even referred to the Word as the sacred writings and the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.15 And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Preach. That, Timothy, preach the Scripture. The Scripture is beneficial for teaching. It's beneficial for reproof. It's beneficial for correction. It's beneficial for training in righteousness. You know, today, in some churches, that the pulpit is no longer in the center of the room. It's been pushed to the back of the room. Now we have the creative arts that have taken over, and we have dramas and We have stories and we have cute little sermonettes for Christianettes. We have the room completely black and the ceiling completely black. The windows covered. We turn the lights out, turn on some spotlights like we're downtown at the Jacksonville Arena seeing a concert. And that's how church services are going on right now this morning. I sat in one years ago. I walked in there with my family. We sat down and we're you know, just kind of getting ready for the service. All of a sudden, all the lights went out. Spotlights came on. Spotlights on the band, on the stage. I hate calling it a stage, but that's what they call it. And all of a sudden, boom, the music started. And we were just like jolted back. I got to be careful doing that. My back's out. But we just kind of jolted back, and we were like, whoa, what's going on? We felt like that Memorex commercial. You know, the guy's sitting in the chair, and his wind's blowing because he's listening to this Memorex tape. It's supposed to be clear. I know I'm speaking above your heads. Cassette tapes, what are they? <laughs> They're gone like eight tracks. But either way, he's sitting there, you know, and he's listening to this, and that's what it felt like. And then when it came to the sermon, you know how long it lasted? Fifteen minutes. Don't go Amen. Fifteen minutes. Well, now that could be as a devotion, if you want to call it that. I don't know if I could do that. But there was no preaching of the word. And it's sad there were almost 500 people sitting in that same room hearing the same thing. We're told to preach the whole council. We're told to preach the word. Now, there are other titles that are given. Acts 5.20, the angel called it the message of this life. Paul referred to it as the message of this salvation in Acts 13.26. He called it, in Romans 10.8, the word of faith that we are preaching. Peter called it, in 1 Peter 4.11, the utterances of God. Paul called it, in Philippians 2.16, the word of life. And just with those titles along, how? How could you not do that? How could you not preach it? I couldn't live with myself for that. I told you last week that it would be very easy 
to pick a book I've taught on before but never taught here and come in here and just teach through that. I wouldn't have to study because it's already done. That would be easy. And that would be lazy. And plus, I've, I found out over the years that when I went back to a message I preached years ago and I look back at it and I go, what in the world is that? And I end up having to restudy it. Either my notes weren't done well enough that I remember some of the interpretation I arrived at or my interpretation was off or I don't know how in the world I got some of the things I got that didn't come from the text. If you can't pull it from the text, that's not expository. Because expository preaching comes from the text you're preaching. All the points come from the text. Every bit of it. And the point of preaching the text is to give the explanation of the text. To explain it to you. That's the only way you're going to grow. Maybe Stanley's statement saying that you can't grow by teaching through books of the Bible is maybe because he tried it and he wasn't explaining it. Or maybe he's heard others try it. Or maybe he sat there and watched his dad do it, but his dad's very topical. So, And don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking his father because this has nothing to do with his father. Train up a child in the way he should go and hopefully he won't depart from it, right? But unfortunately he did. It's one of the largest churches in Atlanta. And this is the kind of stuff coming out of it. And how do we even know about it? You know how we know about it? Because it makes YouTube. And if you're on YouTube, you can listen and watch and hear these statements verbatim. You don't have to read it. You don't have to worry about, well, is the information I got here in print, is this correct? I mean, am I really reading this right? No, because you could turn it on. It's a video and you can hear him say it. So I stomached all I could yesterday as I listened. Beloved God has given such an awesome charge. And that awesome charge has been given to every prophet, every preacher, and it's been given to every believer. Beloved, we are to proclaim the word of God you're only going to grow as you understand and apply the Word of God to your life. Do you know why one of the reasons that you go through trials is to force you to apply the Scripture? Because in, when everything's fine, everything's okay, you're less likely to focus on certain things of the Scripture because you're not going through something traumatic, something difficult, something that you need to hear God on. And like I said, you know, the, the calling to be a pastor is a high and holy calling. I don't take it lightly. But I tell you that he's already told every preacher what to preach. We already know. How can I excite in your heart a love for this if I don't preach it? You know what I mean? How could I tell you to get in the Word if I'm not willing to get in it? Beloved, everything I tell you up here, I'm doing. I'm doing this. I'm not saying that pridefully. I'm telling you, I struggle too. And I, as I read that quote last week from Spurgeon, as he said, the most irksome thing in the world for him was preparing for a sermon. <laughs> I know what that means. Because my stress level and blood pressure starts going up as the week begins to get to the end. Because I know what I have to do. And I know it's not easy. It's never easy. But I'm not telling you that to steer you away from it. I'm telling you that to welcome the challenge. Just because you don't understand certain things when you read the Bible, don't just close the Bible and say, well, I can't understand it. I'll wait till the preacher preaches on it. <laughs> Well, you might be waiting a long time. I might be in glory before I get to that verse. But either way, step up to the challenge. Try to find the answers that you're asking in your study of the Bible. 
That's how you grow. That's what I did in my life personally. I wanted to understand the meaning of things. I was involved in a church after I came to Christ. The brother led me to the Lord, went to a charismatic church. And uh, I was seeing things that I had never seen before, speaking in tongues and all of that. I didn't know what that meant. And then I had a, an older gentleman in the Lord who took the word of God and corrected me. And from that point on, he set a course for my life to come to the scripture with every issue. Especially church issues, especially spiritual gifts. So that's what I began to do. And it was in that process of doing that that I wanted to share it. I wanted to share what I was learning, what I was studying. And so I started doing that. And you take that coupled with listening to good preaching and good reading. And it was out of that that I sensed God's call. This is what God's people needs. I needed this. So do you. So, beloved, just on this whole concept of preaching, and unfortunately our time is gone. I hate that clock. But unfortunately our time is gone, and I have some more things I want to say about this because there's actually four things I want to tell you about the benefits of preaching because there are benefits to it, and they're biblical benefits. And so next week we'll have to wait to look at them. But again, just understand this, that this right here, this, and you have one too, is the Word of God. This is God's Word. Why should we treat it any less? As a preacher, if I'm not willing to preach every word, then that means I don't believe every word. Because that's what expository preaching is. It's preaching every word. It's studying every word. I mean, I want to know the... The nouns, the verbs, the pronouns, the adjectives. I want to know the tenses, the voice, the mood. I want to know if this is a command or not a command. I want to know the historical significance of this verse, historical ramifications that take me back into a culture that I know very little about because I don't live in that culture. I live in a Western culture. So it tells me that when I come to the Bible, I need to lay that kind of stuff down. I can't come to the Bible with a Western interpretation i got to come to the Bible as if I was there at the time it was being written. That's the goal. Beloved, that takes work. That takes time. And I exhort you, make the time. The most important thing you do has to do with this. Do you understand that? The most important thing you do has to do with the Bible. Peter said it this way, God's word will endure forever. Don't say that about anything else. But it says it about God's word. You know, all these books that man has written, they'll burn up. But God's word will endure forever. Make the time. Again, if you're not reading the Bible consistently and regularly, Jump in with us. Just pick up where we're going to be tomorrow. And just start right there. Never too late to start doing what is right. Just do it. Well, like I said, there's more that I'd like to say, but our time's gone. Father, we thank you that as we look at your word, we learn more about you. And as we look at your word, we see the privilege that has been granted to us to have it or just to hold it in our hands that this is the word of the creator originally written with the finger of God. Help us, Lord, to treat it as such. Help us to look at this, our Bibles, and understand that this has been given to us by you. This is your love letter to us. 
Lord, may everybody in here study it in that manner that we've talked about today. And may we preach it. That's the only way that unbelievers will come to understand the gospel is having it explained to them. So help us to proclaim the whole council, I pray, Father. Thank you for each person you brought here today. Thank you for this time we've had together worshiping you. We pray, Lord, as we have an opportunity to, to leave here today, to head back to our homes, and just pray for everyone's journey.